Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Turn to that 14th verse of Ephesians chapter 3 and stand with me as we read God's Word in the honor of reading it this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And it reads like this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with him, with might through his presence in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father this morning we have read your word. We have fellowshiped together, we had worshiped through singing, Father, we had had a wonderful time in the lighting of our first Advent candle, and now I ask that you focus our attention upon this passage, how it applies in our life. I ask that you make very little of me and very much of you, and today let us see you in all of your glory. This we pray in the name of your precious Son and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. If you remember last week, we were trying our best to get through this particular passage. My wife happened to confess to me. She's not in here, is she? Okay, good. My wife happened to confess to me last week when I got up and said, we're going to get through this whole section before we leave. I pray. She leaned over to the person next to him and said, don't hold your breath. You'll die. He'll never get there. Um, So we're going to pick up this morning and finish. There was five points in this particular section of Scripture that Paul was trying to make. If you remember, this is his second prayer. He was praying for us this time for application. The first time he prayed was for us to understand. So he was praying that he would take, that we would take the first, second, and the first part of that third chapter and apply it to our lives and actually utilize in our lives as God would see fit. And he started off that prayer there in verse 16. He said that we would grant, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So the first point we looked at last week was this inner strength. This being strengthened inwardly, and and we all know that we must be strengthened inwardly to maintain in this world we live in. So that was the first point that Paul was making as he said that we should be strengthened inwardly. But then he went to verse 17, and he said that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And the second step, he said, the second part of this prayer was not that you just be filled and strengthened internally there but that you be indwelt by Christ you remember we spent some time talking about this indwelling being like a house your heart being like a house and and what would God find in those different rooms of our house in our living room where we spend our time and fellowship together how would he see us fellowshipping when he moved from there over to our kitchen what would he find our appetite to be would it be for the word of God or would it be for the things of the world When he moved from there and he walked through and he came to the closet, that closet that we all stuff everything in. You know you did it Wednesday night or Thursday morning. When everybody was coming to the house to eat, you were scrambling around saying, grab that, stick it in the closet, get that, stick it in the closet, shut the door. Nobody ever looks in the closet. So we take all those things we want nobody to see and we stuff them in the closet, we shut the door, just pray nobody opens it and stands in front of it because it could kill them when this stuff comes flying out. And we talked about our hearts being like that. Do we have that corner of our heart? 
that we tuck things in and we think God doesn't see. Indwelling is a little more than just knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior. Remember the question I asked last week. Yes, Christ dwells in you if you're saved. The Bible tells us that. But does he feel at home? Are there things in there that make him uncomfortable? Is he constantly having to clean out the corners of your heart to make himself at home? Paul's praying that we're not only strengthened in spirit, but we're indwelt by Christ. In other words, he is dwelling in us and finds himself at home. That was the second point he made. The third point that we ran into last week was this incomprehensible love he talked about in the second half of that 17th verse when he said that you being rooted and grounded in love. We talked about love and Anytime I mention the word love and the scripture that goes along with it, some folks go to Corinthians, they think about the scriptures on love, but most folks think about John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that verse is coupled with another one said later that there's no greater man that one man that no greater love that one man can show for another than to give up his life for him. And when you couple those together, you get this picture of love that God showed us through His Son. And Paul was, was saying there that he wanted the inner man to be strengthened. He wanted Christ to indwell in our hearts, but he wanted you to know this incomprehensible love. We'll pick up with the passage we left off with last week in Matthew, Matthew 22. And I found this interesting, this particular passage in Matthew 22, when uh, starting there in verse uh, 36, he was asked this question. It says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So Matthew twenty two thirty six. 36, there's this question. This question is being asked by the Pharisees. What is the greatest commandment in the law? They wanted to narrow it down to one thing, saying if we could keep this one thing, Jesus, this one commandment that is the greatest, shouldn't we be able to keep them all? Jesus gives an interesting answer when he says in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What is he saying there? Let the love of God consume you. Let the love of God so consume you that that's all that's seen in you. See, Paul has told us in the first three chapters that we should fill our heart, our soul, and our mind with this principle of who you are in Christ. And who you are in Christ is the fact that you were worthless Less than worthless. You were a sinner hating God because you loved your sin. You were trapped in the sinfulness that God loved you so much for. He sent His only begotten Son to earth to redeem you, to buy you from that sin, to adopt you into the family, and now you're a part of the family because of what Jesus Christ did for you. That love. The love to give up the portals of heaven, to walk on this earth, to die for a sinner such as me. No greater love can one man have for another than to give this life. I'll be honest, I know my life. I wouldn't have given up heaven to save me. But God did. He did it because of this love. And he's saying that you should love this God that gave everything for you with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. That means everything you feel should be the love of God. Everything that you meditate on in your mind should be about the love of God. The very nature of your soul, who you are, should be about the love of God. 
But notice Jesus didn't stop there. He went on in verse 38. He says, this is the first and great commandment. Now, he was asked if there was one. He gave the first, but then he moves into 39 and says, and the second, you know, it's like it. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was saying what Paul was praying for. That you should know the incomprehensible love, the fullness of God's love in your life so much that all your neighbors feel it. You see, sometimes we want to come in here and talk about how much we love God, but our neighbor has no idea. You know how much you love God? Apparently not enough to tell your neighbor. What Paul's prayed for is what Jesus was saying. Be so consumed by that love of God that the world sees it and feels it. See, we want laws changed and we want things changed so that it's more acceptable to be a Christian. You want to know how to make it acceptable to be a Christian? Love them so much they can't hate you. You want to change the world? Show the love that Jesus showed when he walked the streets and was ridiculed, spit upon, died on a cross for you. Show the world that love and the world changes. You see, I just happened to think about it. Matter of fact, back in Exodus... Back in the book of Exodus, it's at the very beginning of your Bible. If you're not used to using the book of Exodus, we don't use it a whole lot. Exodus. This just hit me. Exodus chapter 20. Listen to this. You will know this as the Ten Commandments. Listen to this. Verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In verse 3, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. We know that as the first commandment. Verse 4, You shall make... For yourselves, uh, you shall not make for yourself the carved image. We know that as the second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We know that as the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. We know that as the fourth commandment. Who does those four commandments speak to? Your relationship with God. If you love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, are those four taken care of? Absolutely. Watch this. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. Verse 13. You shall not murder. Verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Verse 15. You shall not steal. Verse 16. You shall bear no false witness. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Who do those six talk about in your relation to the world if you love god with all your heart soul mind body spirit all that you are the first four are taken care of if you love your neighbor as yourself the second six are taken care of when jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment what did he say you can take care of all ten by doing two things loving god with everything that you are and showing that love to all of your neighbors end of story you want to keep the ten commandments there's your answer. Be rooted and grounded in love, as he tells us in the book of Ephesians there, where he's, where he's talking about this love, and it's not enough just to know it, but be rooted and grounded in it. As a matter of fact, he goes on there in verse, uh, the end of verse 17, where he says uh, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height do you notice what Paul's saying? That this love reaches everywhere, everything, and everybody. When I think about this height and width 
in length and depth, I see a picture of a cross pointing four directions, pointing us to heaven, to the lowest part of the earth, and to the ends of the earth in all directions. He's saying you should understand, you should know, you should comprehend this love. He says in verse 19, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. In the Greek it says passes all knowledge, all comprehension. To know this love that would cause a God to send his only son to die upon a cross. Can you imagine giving your son or your daughter to die for someone who chooses sin over you? Could you imagine being God and having people that choose sin over you and still love him enough that you would crawl on a cross and die? See, that's that knowledge that is so greater than our knowledge about the love that Christ has for us. You see, Paul knew if our inner man is strengthened by the Holy Spirit, then Christ would indwell our hearts, and that we would know Christ's incomprehensible love. And if we knew Christ's incomprehensible love, then the fourth thing that he asked God for would take place. And we find that in verse 19 at the end. It says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Have you ever wanted to know all there is to know about God? Have you ever wanted to be so consumed by God that nothing in the world mattered? Now, what Paul's praying for is not that you will know everything, but that you will have everything within you. How do you relate that? If you go down to the ocean with a glass, and you take the glass and you go out into the ocean, and you scoop up, scoop up a glass full of water, can I say that I have all the ocean in my glass? No, I can't, because I can look and see there's still ocean left. But can I say that I have all that the ocean is? In my glass. Absolutely. Because it would be full of the ocean. And what Paul is praying for here. Is that you would have that fullness of all that God is within you. To be so strengthened in spirit. That we're compelled by love. To completely deny ourselves And be dominated by the lordship of Christ. You see many people walk the aisle to find Christ as a savior. But very few turn and walk out to recognize him as Lord. And see, Christ must be both Savior and Lord. There is no separating those two things. You can't have a ticket to heaven and deny the Lordship of Christ. To take Christ as Lord means He is in control of you. If you're honest with yourself this morning, can you say that Christ is truly the Lord of your life? If you've sinned, if you've denied something that he's asked you to do and you've chosen not to, if you found a 100,000 reasons to do it your way, not his, then he is not Lord. He can't be part-time Lord and part-time Savior. He must be all of both. See, even when he introduces himself in Scripture, most times he's introduced as Lord and Savior. I find it remarkable that he always puts Lord first. I don't think it has anything to do with it being alphabetical. He understands that what you're doing is you're taking your life that's been under the lordship of sin and you're placing it under the loving lordship of Jesus. 
See, Jesus doesn't demand of you for the sake of demanding. He loves through you. And it's the loving through you that makes him the Lord of your life. That's what Paul is praying for. He's saying to be so consumed by Jesus that we no longer exist, that all we are is him, all that is seen of us is him, that all that we do is because of him and it's for him. How much different would your life look if each step you took, each breath you breathed, each word you spoke was all about Jesus? But that's the way it's supposed to be. Matter of fact, he tells us over in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 13, he says this, Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, see this lordship factor, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written. And he reaches back in Scripture, and he brings his Scripture out, And he brings his scripture out of Leviticus and he says, Be holy, for I am holy. What is the standard of being a Christian? It's not being good. It's not giving out money. It's not living a good life. It's being holy. Anything short of the holy bar is failure. It's time Christians quit trying to say, I'm as good as the next guy and say, I'm not as good as Jesus. And that's what I'm supposed to be. It's time we quit comparing ourselves to our neighbor and compare ourselves to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And He is holy. There is no excuse for us not to be holy. You can say, well, I'm trapped in this body. Yes, and Jesus died that you would have power over that body. He told us when He was talking about being in field and strengthening the body that the Holy Spirit was the one that lived within you. Can the Holy Spirit conquer sin in your life? Then you have no excuse. You should be holy. And what he is saying here is be holy. Why? Because God is holy. The fullness of God is beyond all human comprehension. This fullness that we are to be filled with is just beyond it. Because we don't understand what it means to be holy. Because we are trapped in this body that is inclined to sin. Yet God commands us to be holy. We're to live a life of holiness because God is holy. The fullness of God is displayed in His holiness. For He says in verse 17 of 1 Peter 1, And if you call on the Father, in other words, He's saying, If you call God Father, who who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. As long as you're here, if God is your Father, you should conduct yourself in fear. It says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Do you see what it takes to live holy? Place your faith and hope in God through the work of Jesus Christ upon a cross the death for your sins. So Paul knew that if our inner man was strengthened by the Holy Spirit, then Christ would indwell our heart. We would know Christ's incorruptible or incomprehensible love. 
And we're in field with the fullness of God. But then there was one final thing that Paul prayed for. One final thing that Paul prayed for in verse 20 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. In verse 20 he prayed for this. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you know what Paul is praying for the church, for you? He's praying that if your inner man is strengthened by the Holy Spirit and Christ is indwelling at home in your heart, and that you know that incomprehensible love of Christ in your heart, if you know all that and you're just infilled with the fullness of God, if God is just all-consuming in your life, then you're going to have this irrefutable power in your life. Do you sometimes feel powerless as a Christian? Do you look at the world around you and feel like you're being backed into a corner? Do you feel like all the people want to be hard on Christians? Do you feel like we've become the punching bag for society? I mean, look at the news. It never fails. You always see this situation with Christians. As a matter of fact, they said that we shouldn't pray at football games or in schools or anywhere else. We shouldn't really have a Christian value or opinion when it comes to to abortion or same-sex marriage. It's not fair that you use your Christian values in those situations because that's not a Christian thing. Yet, when we want to bring refugees from another country into our country, and we as Christians stand up and say we ought not do that, they say, where are your Christian values? In other words, as long as it fits their motive, we can be a Christian. But when it goes against their motive and it causes them to look at themselves and say, you know what, we might not be right, they take those Christian values and throw them out. See, because there's something about being an infield Christian that just has the love of God that just rubs the people who don't know Jesus the wrong way. And it should. They're looking at your life should cause them to realize their life is messed up. If they don't look at you and realize there's something wrong with them, then you don't have that power that Paul is praying for. See, in the obvious progression of what Paul is saying, he gets to this verse 20. The very first word of verse 20 says this, Now. You know what that means in the Greek? Now. (laughs) Exact same word. You see what he's saying? When I started back here praying in the 14th verse and mentioned all these things, when I get to the 20th verse, say, now that you understand these things from the 14th verse through the 19th, now that 14 through 19 is taking place in your life now, let me tell you about what God's going to do in power. He says this power is going to happen. He says this God, he says, him who is able to do. What is God able to do? to do anything anything and everything god has all the power in the world why he created it the man who makes the watch has the power to fix that watch god is the creator of everything you see including you he created each thing for a specific reason for a specific purpose to fit in the puzzle a specific way and he has the power the control over all those things. Yet he's able to do other things. I've seen it. 
I've seen those who have had something wrong with their body, and the doctors say, I don't know what we're going to do, and suddenly they no longer have a problem in their body. It wasn't anything to do with the doctor. It was to do with the great physician. I've seen those who have just been destitute, and their, their families just fallen apart, and they don't know what else to do. And God steps in and puts those pieces back together. I've seen those marriages where husband and wife can't stand to be in the same room with each other. Yet God steps in and they understand this love that God has for them each as individuals. And their love together grows. It's all about God. I've been with family members who have been on their knees. Praying for a son or a daughter. A husband, a wife, a family member that doesn't know Jesus that doesn't want to hear about Jesus. And I've gotten a phone call. I said, you're not going to believe this, Pastor. I just got a phone call from my son on the other side of the country. And last night, he bumped into a fellow that told him about Jesus, and he now believes. That's a God thing. See, there is nothing greater to me. The miracle's fantastic. God created everything great. But there's no greater miracle to me than God taking a person like me and washing his sins white as snow. There's the miracle of all miracles. And what Paul is saying here is him who is able to do all things. This is an ongoing ability. It is not a one-time thing when the heart is prepared. God's ability works in and through that heart to the world. He goes on there in the second part of that. He says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Why did he add two words? Why couldn't he just say exceedingly? Why couldn't he just say abundantly? Why did he say exceedingly abundantly? That's like a double good, isn't it? Can you imagine? He's saying, this God who's able to do everything, and he's able to do it this exceedingly abundantly way. In the Greek, it was just one word. That one word could have been um, introduced and, and interpreted different ways. Superabundant, superior, excessive. But what it really speaks of in the Greek is this preeminence. This God in charge of all things. This ability to do all things. And he says that, it's exceedingly abundantly, and it's above all that we ask or think. Think about what you've asked God for in the last 24 hours. Paul says he's able to do exceedingly, exceedingly abundantly more than that. I just wish I could live up to the things I ask God to do or think that he's capable of. You know what I mean? You ever stopped and look at the list of things you ask him for? And then stop and think of who God is. It's got to be sort of comical to him sometimes. It rains for a week, and we're all on our knees said, Oh, please don't let it rain anymore. We sure would love for it not to rain. And then it gets hot, and so oh, we sure would love for it not to be hot anymore. He's God. <laughs> He's able to wash away my sins, and I'm asking him to turn off the rain and bring us cool. Somehow it makes no sense. That this God that is so massive, in charge of so many things, can do exceedingly abundantly. And I'm asking him for, of, excuse my French, but the stupid little things in my life. Is it not amazing to think how big this God is, but how little we think he is? You know how I know you think he's little? Think about what you've asked him for. 
He's already said that he's exceedingly abundantly above all. Above all. See, if we fail to prepare our hearts for Christ's indwelling presence, we never see God do the exceeding and abundant things in us or through us. That's why Paul, when he prayed for all those things, he said, now with this understanding and the indwelling of God in your heart, making himself at home, get prepared because God's going to show up in a big way. How big? He says, according to the power that works in us. And you may say, hold on a second. There's not much power in us. What is that power? Look back real quickly to Acts with me. Acts chapter 1. Here is this power. Acts chapter 1 verse 4 says this, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So, Jesus is gathered there with his disciples. He says, wait for this promise. He says, which, he said, you have heard from me. And he said, this promise is something I've told you about. He goes on in verse 5 to say, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, This Holy Spirit is the same one that Paul started praying that would strengthen your inner man. Look what he says in verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What is this power that shows up in your life? It's the Holy Spirit. Well, you may say, how big is this Holy Spirit power? Back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul told us this in verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believe? So he's answering the question. What is this exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when? When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. What is the power that's going to work in you? The same power that brought a dead man from the grave. How powerful do you have to be to raise the dead? It's one thing to fix a body. It's another thing to give a body life that is dead. As far as I know, God is the only one that can put life where there is death. He did it for me as a sinner when my soul was dead and headed to hell. He did it in the life of His only begotten Son when He called Him from the tomb. And He says it wasn't just enough to raise Him from the dead. He seated Him at the seat of power at the right hand of His Father. Right now, that power that is going to work in you when your heart is set up to indwell Christ is the same power that raised Him from the dead. Why, very quickly, why is this going to happen? He goes on to say there in in that 21st verse of Ephesians chapter 3. He says, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church. To Him be glory in the church. How has God chosen to show this power to the world? 
the church. Is that not remarkable to anybody other than me? God has chosen you to show his power. The same power that raised his son from the dead. So the same power that raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand, the Father wants to put in you, the church. Why? For his glory. He wants to glorify you. Does he just want to do it today? He solves that at the end of 21 when he says, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. See, you have a generational responsibility as a church to pass on this knowledge of the love and the power of Christ to the next generation. The generation that follows you will be the example you show them. What example is the next church seeing? Is it seeing a church filled with power? See, we are to glorify God through a Christ-like life throughout all generations. And we're to do this, it says, forever and ever. See, there is no retirement in Christianity. You don't get saved, get old, and get rested. You get saved, get old, and get strengthened. Strengthened in the inner man that you may show that love to all. So I ask you this question in closing. Are you strengthened in your inner man? Does Jesus feel at home in your heart? Does his love, does his love flow from you to the world that you live in? Is God's power evident in your life? Are you glorifying God in all that you do? If not, church, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.